words appear. The email addresses and groups mentioned on this program no longer exist. Blind Like Me does exist in its new incarnation on groups.io. To join, send a blank email to blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. That's blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. Again, welcome to Blind Like Me. I'm Phil Parr. You knew that, uh, but what you didn't know is that our guest is Roger Zolman. Is that right, sir? That's correct. Correct. Uh, and you are from Fairfax, Virginia, did you say? Yes, that's right. And uh, that's in Eastern Time, and that's where, that's, uh, uh, that's not the capital, is it? No. No. No, I no, can't remember. Um, uh, Richmond is the capital of Virginia. Okay. Where you know, 20 miles west of uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. But we do have a, a lot of congressmen and government officials and whatnot that actually live here, and they commute into the district for their, you know, official government. But you're not involved in government uh, at all? No. Not at this point, no. But you, you, well, that sounds like you have been at one time. Well, I, I was a... Uh, the division optometrist for the 24th Infantry Division, so I guess the military is still considered part of You, you know. might say that's government? Yes, you might. Yeah, that's right. You uh, uh, you were an, an optometrist, or it was that was your field of, of, uh, of endeavor? Uh, yes, yes, I was an optometric physician. Yes. Uh, uh, until you began yourself to lose your eyesight. Yes, mm-hmm. You said was in 1999. So, uh, how long did you? You had you, you never thought, or it never crossed your mind that this might happen, or you knew? Oh, I, I knew it uh, that I was at risk. I've had high myopia since I was 10 years old, and you know, very thick glasses and contact lenses. And oh, really? Re, you know, going in every year to have examinations of the retina. Because people who are very nearsighted, you know, have a much greater tendency for retinal detachment. So, so I knew that I was at risk. Do you think that's the reason you went into your uh, your chosen field? Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just remember, you know, being ten years old, and I was totally embarrassed. Uh, the teacher gave me a note to take home to my mother that I had failed the eye test at school. Oh. And I, I mean, I'd never failed a, a, a test before in my entire life, and uh, I, I knew that you know a note from the teacher to your parents was always bad. Really? And so uh, I just kind of hid the note in my pants pocket, and my mom found it when uh, she went to wash my pants, and 
well, we have to take you to the eye doctor and see what the problem is. And I was totally impressed with uh, all the technology and all the instrumentation and the tests. And I was even totally amazed at the results. You know, driving home, you know, I could see the individual leaves on the trees and read the signs and read the the chalkboard from the back of the room, uh, things that I couldn't do before. Because they had given you some uh, some uh, just glasses, regular glasses yes. or contacts or what? Mm-hmm. Right, regular glasses. And and that just, that, uh, boom, then you could see again. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I suppose at 10 years old, a kid 10 years old, you, you think, you'd, like you said, you'd never failed a test before. So you kind of thought, well, hell, this, maybe this is my fault. I, I, you know, I, maybe something I've done. You know, you, you kind of, and and so they took you to the eye doctor, and boom, you could see. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you you now looking back on it, you sort of made up your mind. Well, this maybe this is what I'd like to do. Well, I thought that that would be very gratifying if you could help people to you know see better and to function better. Oh yeah. That that would have a lot of gratification. So uh, I was impressed with what my eye doctor was able to do for me, and so I thought that would be a, a very worthwhile field to pursue. Yeah, and and so you did. You finished high school in, a, in a just a, a plain public a public school, just regular uh, yes. school. No, no weren't around any other blind children or, or blind people really to speak of, I suppose. I remember uh, in the sixth grade we did a field trip to the school for the blind. Really? So I thought that was was also quite impressive. I remember going in, you know, into this special school for the blind, and they had these globes where the continents were elevated where you could feel the shape of the land masses and the countries and whatnot, and they had all sorts of interesting uh, techniques that they used to educate the blind students there. So I I was kind of impressed with that. I I didn't make any connection, you know, at that point in time, but uh, certainly that was uh, an interesting thing that I remember, you know, to this day. Yeah, I, I wish I had one. Uh, I remember those also. I'd, I'd like to. I wish I'd paid more attention to it. That's what I really wish. Uh, so, and you, you graduated high school, and you decided to to go in and uh, to go to college and, and get your degree in uh, what would it be? In optometrics or optical? Well, my my undergraduate degree is in science, is in general science, and so uh-huh. it's basically, my advisor said, you know, you can't get a a doctorate degree at this level, you have to choose something else. And so, uh-huh. I, I, you know, my undergraduate degree is in science, and so you have a basic background in science as far as biology, physics, chemistry, uh-huh. you know, that sort of thing. And then you apply to the, the graduate school. There's like 15 of them in the country. And a very competitive admissions process, and I fortunately was one of those selected. We had 630 applicants for 70 positions in my class. So you have to have a four-year degree before you could you could go get this PhD or master's, yes, or whatever. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a four-year di- program. I mean, the undergraduate program, yeah. and then four years of graduate school, and then internship and residency. So it's it's quite involved. It takes ten or twelve years to actually Absolutely. to to be able to uh, to uh, quote unquote hang up a shingle or go into private practice or go to work for. For even uh, some somebody else takes uh, takes a good while. Oh, absolutely, and it's very expensive education as well. So we'll put you at twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty years old, close to that when you when you actually finished your schooling. 
Have to well, be. Well, um, yeah, that, that's that's true. I was let's see, twenty six actually, because uh, my mother started me early in school. Uh-huh. So I actually started at four years of age. Now, let, let me just touch this back. You say there were how many applicants to the school that you, that you were that they selected you? Six hundred. Six hundred and thirty applicants for seventy positions. For seventy positions, and you got one of them. Yes. That in and of itself is pretty amazing. Well, it, it is. Yeah. What are the other What are the other five hundred and eighty or whatever? What do they do? Just keep applying? Uh, what, what do they do? Forget it or what? Um, I think they they pretty much. Uh, <laughs> we we did have one lawsuit. I was on the admissions committee the next year. A student from Nebraska that had a four point and ninety nine percentile on the admissions test, and he was denied admission because they didn't have any slot for him. And uh, hmm. so so I mean, there's pretty various, competitive. You know, results of that they can go into another field, uh, healthcare related field. They can go into teaching, they can go in other fields, but the, the admissions process is quite competitive, and, uh, you know, there's not, you know, not every state even has a school, and so you have to have like a, they called it WICHI, it's a Western uh, Inter-Regional Commission on Higher Education, and they, you know, instead of having, particularly out west, where you have small states like Idaho and Wyoming that yeah. don't have a large population, that they can't afford to have a, a big, expensive uh, program like this. And so they all kind of consolidate their funds, and then they put one school in a fairly central location, and uh-huh. then they, they provide a, a better opportunity for, you know, education. But it's they actually sell the contracts, you know, to the various states, and the state mm-hmm. legislature votes, you know, we want to buy two contracts with Pacific University, and then they t- take the two highest applicants from that state, and then, you know, in certain areas, they really were prevented from, from having an education in that field. Now, your admission to this program was based on your college transcript or based on some test, IQ test or something? What was it based well, on? Well, they have the optometry college admissions test, which is very okay. similar, to, similar to the medical college admissions test. In fact, it's almost identical. It's administered by the same uh, people, the educational testing service that does the SATs. And... Uh, you basically taste, take a written test uh, covering all the fields that you studied, biology, chemistry, physics, uh, uh-huh. that sort of thing, and then you're given a percentile, and then they use that in determining you know, which applicants are actually selected. They use other factors, not only grade point average, the quality of education, the, the strength of your course load, um, letters of recommendation, uh, personal interviews, all of those things okay. go into determining admissions. And your past performance, of course, in your oh, yeah. transcripts. Yeah. And Great point average transcripts, sure. how tough were the courses, you know, was it, you know, um, you know, I mean, no one from community college really got in. I mean, these were all people from, sure. you know, major four-year academic programs that uh, were, you know, top-notch in the country.
Now, at this time, your vision was correctable to almost, we can't, won't say perfect, but you were, you were still driving a car and operating oh, yeah, as a right. normal, uh, normal, I hate to use the word normal, but it's operating as a sightless. Right. Yeah. I don't like to use the word normal. That, that has a connotation that we're abnormal, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there was a controversy in the field about that. They actually had a, a doctor wrote a book called Subnormal Vision. <laughs> And so I remember, well, that's really a strange thing that you would call your patient subnormal. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, certainly 20-20 sighted or, or sighted is, is appropriate. Yeah, a sight-enabled uh, sight person, I think. Sure. That's kind of a buzz, the word I've been using, sight-enabled. And you were at this time driving a car, doing just oh, yeah. down, having a big time in your life and, and going to college. And got a, got that uh, that uh, secondary education, got that, that, that degree. Uh, began interning somewhere, and tell tell us about that when you got out of college. Well, I, I interned at the Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington, in the Department of Ophthalmology, and uh, it was a tremendous experience for me. Um, my father was in the military, and so I always thought, well, you know, it would be a good deal to go into the military, and they offered what they call a health profession scholarship that helped pay for my, uh, you know, 10 years of college. and. So that was a very exciting time for me to actually be involved in patient care and, and helping patients, you know, surgery, you know, surgically, yeah. medically, and with, you know, vision aids. And uh, I learned a great deal, and I had a tremendous exposure, you know, to patients. The military was extremely short of eye doctors at that point in time, and basically they said, you have the run of the clinic. You can do anything you want to do. And... Uh, I mean, I, I remember, you know, you have certain requirements that you have to be able to, to do, you know, to finish your internship, and I was like, you know, 10 times more the, than the, the normal student would get as far as patient uh, care exposure. Really? Mm-hmm. And this was your internship, but you were you actually... Uh, considered in in conscription to the military or just working as a civilian employee? No, I, I had a military obligation at that time. They had paid for, at that point, eight years of education, and so I had a military obligation. So I actually had an ROTC scholarship for undergraduate and a health profession scholarship okay. for graduate school. Okay, and this uh, was in, where did they, did they send you somewhere? Did they, uh, I mean, was this, where, where was this? Uh, well, um, you know, I'm originally uh, from the West Coast, from Oregon. Okay. So I went to school in Portland, Oregon, and then I did my internship at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. And uh, then I received a letter and some uh, plane tickets to go to New York City at the University Eye Center at the State University of New York in New York City. Okay. And so Dr. Alden Hafner, who uh, later became the uh, chancellor for all of the medical programs in the state of New York, um, walked with me into his office. And, I mean, for someone, uh, you know, right out of school, that was very impressive. Um, New York City is, uh, you know, probably the biggest city that I've ever been in. Yeah. So I walk into his office, and his office is... You know, the biggest office I've ever seen. <laughs> and I mean, it's like a bowling alley, you know, as far as the length. And I'm standing there, and he's asking me, he says, Well, I understand that you're the best, uh, you know, student in the country graduating this year. And I kind of look around, I said, I mean, it's a big office. I thought, there must be someone standing behind me, you know, who's, who's he talking about here? 
and I realized that he was talking to me. And so they had 70 doctors, you know, apply for that position, and they turned them all down, and they asked me to apply for that position. Which you did? Yes. Now, and, and, and we're still operating as a sighted person? Yes. Okay. And and you applied for the position and got it. That was pre predetermined that you were going to get it, and so you were allowed to work for this uh, this gentleman or with this uh, with this gentleman with, uh, for. Well, the the official title is chief resident in ocular pathology and special testing <laughs> at the University of New York. Title as big as the office. Well, yeah. that's kind of the way they do it in in New York. You know, if they don't pay you a big salary, then they give you kind of a fancy title. Mm-hmm. And the military doesn't pay big salaries, so they needed to give him give him a, a, a big title. And you, this was the beginning of your. Had, had you were you through at this time with your internship, ready to yeah, actually yeah, I, practice? I just completed my internship, uh-huh. and uh, I was looking to further my career. And I mean, I, I it wasn't something that I was consciously. You know, shooting for apparently uh-huh. someone had told me about about my clinical skills, and uh, they wanted to have the best person to fill that position. Now, what did they have you do? Looking, are you, were you uh, uh, examining uh, enlistees, or sorry, what, what did they want you to do? Well, at the State University of New York, of course, the University Eye Center is the world's largest eye hospital. And basically, the patients that I saw were the people who had already undergone all of the normal routine testing, and they determined that these people, you know, were not correctable to 2020 using standard means. And so they would send them up to the ninth floor, which was the pathology floor. And then we had all sorts of special equipment, uh, electroretinograms, electrooculograms, visually evoked response, uh, you know, a six-bed surgical uh, unit, um, advanced medical treatments, imaging, MRIs, CAT scans, that sort of thing. And so we would diagnose and treat those patients who basically were not correctable to 2020. And we also had a big low vision department. I don't know if you know Bruce uh, Rosenthal. He's head of the Lighthouse International at this point. Uh, no, sir, I don't. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't. Uh, uh, and, and so these were people who were in the military. No, this was in, in, in New York City. I understand. In New York City. I was given a deferment, you know, to finish the residency with the military, thinking that, uh, you know, by having all this great clinical experience, this doctor will be more valuable to us. Okay, but you still owed the military. Yeah, you were I still, still obligated the to the military. Okay, let, let, if you don't mind, let's pause right here and take a, just a short break. And uh, uh, our guest is Roger Zillman. I'm Phil Parr. Back in just a minute with more of our little show called Blind Like Me. Hang on. Hi, my name's Donna, and for the past five years, I've lived up here in the cold country, Rochester, Minnesota. I'd love to move love to a warmer Love is Blind, but, you know, the audio magazine you know for singles. Anyway, I'm around 32 years old, give or take a couple of years, and never been married. Oh, come close once or twice, but things just didn't work out. If you'd like more information about this exciting new magazine, phone toll-free 1- 877 That's 1-877-222-0679. 
222-220-679. Or you can receive the same information as an email. Our address is loveisblind, all one word, at blindlikeme.com. That's loveisblind at blindlikeme.com. Blind Science. Here's a website our crack research team certifies screen reader friendly. Now, with this week's Blind Sight, here's Tim Cummings. For those of you interested in reading, I've got another online book site this week. Actually, the website is called the Online Books Page. It's part of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is a site that has a lot of the Gutenberg links to the Gutenberg collection. The Gutenberg collection, for those of you who don't know, was begun by a guy who got a whole bunch of people together to type in a lot of the books whose copyrights had expired so that they were in the public domain. A lot of the older classic books, authors like Thomas Hardy, William James, Henry James, Jane Austen, and he got in a whole bunch got a whole bunch of people to type these books into a computer and put them up online. So this site has links to a lot of those books with a searchable index. You can search by author, by title. You can search for a book that you want, and there are links to the different books that you can download. The website is http colon slash slash online books. That's O-N-L-I-N-E-B-O-O-K-S period library period U-P-E-N-N period E-D-U slash. I would give the website a screen reader friendliness rating of a nine, and for blind sites, this is Tim Cummings saying, keep on blind sighting. If you found a screen reader friendly website you'd like us to mention, send your email to blindlikeme, all one word, at txucom.net. And join us again next time for Blind Sights. Our guest is Roger Zolman, who uh, spent his life uh, in the optometric field. Is that the way? I guess that's the way to put it. Uh, spent his spent his has a, uh, a, a master's or a PhD or what? What do you? What do you? A doctorate. A, a, a doctorate. Mm-hmm. Doctorate. And um, we have him in New York um, at the world's largest. But how did you phrase it a while ago, sir? The world's world's the world's largest eye center. World's largest eye center doing. Uh, you were still uh, re- re- basically in the the military, uh, but you have gotten a deferment. They've given you a deferment to study here because they realize that you will be better off and better able to serve them if you are able to study w- w- with this at this eye center. Mm-hmm. Am I am I correct? I'm, yes, yes. Actually, the, uh, Dr. Hafner, who was the dean of the program at that time, uh-huh. called up the uh, the head eye doctor at uh, Walter Reed and said, uh, "You know, this doctor is the best doctor in the country, and we want him in our program." And so they said, "Well, you know, uh, that'll make us more valuable when he, you know, finally comes on active duty. So we'll we'll give you some time with him so that he can finish his training." Okay, how long did you stay there in New York City with training? And two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. Then, then you went. Then we did what? We went to. Then, then I went on active duty. Okay. 
Okay. I went went to Fort uh, Sam Houston uh, to medical officers' base. Ah, San Antonio, Texas, San Antonio, USA. Texas. Yes, sir. Got mm-hmm. to learned about Mexican food, Tex-Mex. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was I was raised there. That's why I'm laughing. I was I was uh, wasn't born there, but I lived there for a long time and 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 love it. It's a wonderful city. It is. It really um, is. That's where I met my wife. She was a nurse attending uh, nurses training there. And uh, we were both assigned to the same uh, base at Fort Stewart, Georgia. And so we met each other and talked to each other and went out a few times. And then uh, a couple of years later, we got married. But you did get a chance to experience a Texas summer? Uh, oh, absolutely. Very much. Right. You get below 90 degrees. Well, it doesn't. In the winter, you'll get up in the morning and go punch your, th- broil your talking thermometer, and the temperature will be you know, 73 in the house and 87 outside at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's I just, know. It's just the way it is. So you stayed at Fort Sam Houston for a while. Uh, you, you're, you're still functioning, still driving a car. Right. Um, okay. And uh, then from there to... To um, to Georgia to Fort Sam. Yes, yes. I was assigned as chief of the uh, eye clinic at U.S. Army Hospital, Fort Stewart, Georgia. And you were still seeing patients that that they had determined could not be corrected by normal means. I mean, this right. was mm-hmm. uh, this was still your your bailiwick or your your thing to do was was figure out how to get these people uh, sight. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is a hospital setting. Um, we had emergency room on call. Uh, we had, were, you know, the referral center for all the other doctors, you know, in the area when they had patients that needed to be treated, you know, medically or surgically. We would take care of all of those patients. All right. Uh, a couple of years in San Antonio was uh, some time in Georgia. Um, how long did you? How much did you owe the military? How many years? Six years. And you did all six. Got yes, out. Got out and uh, and uh, uh, um, decided to do what? To open, to go in private practice or what? Yes, I, I decided to go into private practice. That was one of my goals. And they also recruited me to come to the East Carolina University School of Medicine in the Department of Ophthalmology. Okay. So I had a private practice on the side and was was you know, teaching medical students and practicing in the ophthalmology service. Now, this is University of what now again? East Carolina University School of Medicine. East Carolina. Yes. In Greenville, North Carolina. Okay. And, and Greenville, I was going to say. <laughs> all right. And and so you talked there. You were a professor there for a while. Yes. Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. All right. When did, when did, uh, did you, your uh, current problem with your eyes began, or be, be, you realized this is, I'm, I, heal, you know, heal myself. Maybe I can't fix this. Um, well, I, I, you know, certainly realized that I was at risk for retinal detachments, and uh, so I would go in annually and have my retinal specialist, you know, look, and you know, everything was fine up until then, other than typically what you see in someone who has a high myopia, uh-huh. uh, minus nine. And uh, then in 1988, you know, I like to do a lot of outdoor activities, and so we had just come back from a a national camperama, cross country trip to Missouri, and and uh, you know, I had just undergone a complete physical exam. Everything was great, and mm-hmm. I go in and I say, "There's you know something wrong. I'm having a lot of pain and redness in my left eye." And of course, my HMO, you know, which is 
you know, Aetna, that's not really necessarily appropriate, but uh, yeah. um, they said, no, no, you have to see your primary care doctor. You've got to get a referral. You can't just, you know, go in and... You can't just dance in here like you own the place. And so I got a young resident who really didn't know what he was doing, and so he put some forcing in my eye and says, well, you don't have a foreign body. You know, you must have conjunctivitis. And I said, no, no, it's not conjunctivitis. You know, it doesn't cause loss of vision, doesn't cause severe pain, whatnot. You know, I think you need to go ahead and, you know, send me out to someone who knows what they're doing. And he, you know, took him several hours, you know, to go through that process. And so finally, I, I told him, this is the doctor I want you to send me to because I know he's, this is his field. Yeah. And uh, so he he stayed around, actually, uh, you know, that uh, even though his office was closed, you know, he says, well, you know, I know it's Dr. Zolman, you know, I'll wait around for him. And so he sure. says, well, you're right, you know, the retina is detached there. We need to get you into surgery right away. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. So this is um this was late eighties, nineteen eighty nine. This was was actually nineteen ninety eight. Oh, nineteen ninety eight. Okay, so they took you into surgery and attempted to fix the problem. That's right. Mm-hmm. That was my my start of a total of eight surgeries. Oh, and finally determined that it couldn't be reattached. Yeah, I mean. Basically, I was conscious, you know, during the surgery, you know, this is one of the best uh, retinal surgeons in the world, and he was saying, I'm having a hard time controlling the bleeding. You know, I don't know, you know. They, they put in silicone oil, which acts as a tamponade to hold the retina against the wall of the eye to prevent it from detaching, yeah. and it just, you know, it just didn't work. There was just too much blood, and it just didn't work. Uh-huh. And and you lost complete, completely lost vision in that eye. Yes. During that, uh, you, you when you went into the surgery, could you see any for, out of that eye? Was it working yeah, at all? I could count fingers, you know. That's about it. That was it. And when you came out of the surgery, it, that was, I mean, that's just a chance you take. There was nothing that I was shot. I mean, you... Well, the retina is completely detached. Yeah, so, so you couldn't you know, the see retina it all. The is the, the part of the eye that processes the light and sends it to the brain for interpretation. And so, when that, the retina is not attached, then you have no vision. Nothing. Uh, nothing. Okay, now this was one eye. This is the left eye? Yes. Did you say? The right eye, what What about it? How was it doing? Well, uh, again, we knew that the right eye, you know, was similar to the left eye, that it was at risk. And then about two or three months later, it started bleeding inside of the eye. And uh, I immediately said, this is wrong. This is the retina starting to detach. And they went in and said, yep, you're right again. You know, we need to take you to surgery. And they started doing the same procedure for the right eye. Uh-huh. And so the right eye, they were able to to use hyper-expandable gases. And so it's like kind of like a balloon being blown up inside of the eye, and it presses the retina against the wall of the eye to enable it to reattach. And so that worked somewhat. And so I was left with 2,200 vision with 50 degrees of visual field. In the right eye. Okay, and is that where we are now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And is that going to change, or is that as far as it's going to go? Do we think? Uh, do you think? Well, I mean that's that's always a, a, a guesstimate, and and I mean that's kind of one of the things that eye doctors 
they, they actually fear blind people because they view them as treatment failures. And that's what eye doctors call them. Not that the people are failures. It's just that the treatment didn't work as well as they hoped it would work. Um, so it's stable right now. I mean, I went through the, all sorts of uh, visual rehabilitation with the uh, Veterans Administration Hospital and orientation and mobility training and assistive technology and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm fairly stable and have been for the last two or three years. What is the prognosis 10 years from now? You know, I mean, I don't think anyone well, can predict that. Ten, 10 years from now, we're going to have... Um, some sort of way to transmit information to your brain other than, in other words, my, my thinking is that we may be looking at the last generation of blind people. That's an interesting, you know, concept, and uh, I certainly hope that that's true, but uh, there's still a lot of problems out there that we really are not close to solving. By yeah. Uh, so you you realized that you could no longer, uh, could you do what you had been doing when you had only one eye? Was it possible to do the, the, the no, teaching? And... A lot of the stuff that, that I do requires good depth perception. I mean, you're looking at a corneal foreign body. The cornea is a half a millimeter thick, and if you're trying to remove that foreign body, I mean, you have to have very, very accurate depth perception. When you're looking in the back of the eye for a dilated fundus examination, you may be looking for a tumor that may be a thousandth of a millimeter thick. You know? uh -huh. so, so that type of, of depth perception was not possible. So it's really the, the loss of the one eye really prevented me from doing direct patient care. Okay, so you had to make some decisions then. You had to yes. do, you had to say, well, I can't do this anymore. I'll go do this. Exactly and correct. And so you you decided to do what? Um, I always was involved, you know, in clinic management, hospital administration, you know, the administrative aspect of the practice of, of uh -huh. medicine. And so uh, I enjoyed that part of it, and I knew that. Any doctor, you know, eventually you become not physically able to perform at the highest levels, and as a result of that, you have to, you know, consider something else. And so I decided at that point to go back to graduate school, which I had always planned to do, and uh, earn a master's in uh, administrative medicine management. Administrative medicine management. Yes. Which is what you did. Yes. Now, but you had to do this in a different way because you could you still read the you couldn't read the no. textbooks. No. Correct. That's correct. Well, well, were we to the point then where we had did we have computers? Could you could you? Use? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we had computers. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because this was late nineties, early early, uh, you know, ninety nine, right? Right. So we had computers, and you could you could get all your textbooks, all your books. And right. uh, you could read them, some of them on computer or some of them with four-track tapes or maybe, you know, whatever. Both, yeah. Uh, very common for me. I just bought a scanner, and I would go ahead and scan in my material and then manipulate it on the computer to a format that I could, uh -huh. you know, reasonably get by with. Sure. And so went back to college, but it was a different it was a different deal. Did you have to move? Did you have to? Were you, were no. you, were, you were out of the military. You were through with them. You were you didn't have to move to to get this degree. 
Right. I was in Fairfax, Virginia at the time. Uh-huh. I had to take orientation mobility training, and I learned how to take the bus and get on the metro train and go to downtown D.C. and find my way around. And and uh, it was a, a challenge. Sure it was, uh, because you were then considered a blind person. Uh, yeah. You were no longer no longer sight-enabled. You were, you were a blind person, so you were having to do things like a blind person. Exactly. Um which doesn't seem to slow you down too much. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it did to a degree, but uh, and and you went back to college. Now, that what, what? How long did it take to get this this uh, uh, postgraduate degree? Well, it actually took me 12 months. It's a 24 month program, but uh, I wanted to, you know, get on with my life, and I wanted to. I mean, part of it was not just to get the degree, but to prove to myself, you know, that I could still sure. compete. You know, in a a very productive way, with basically these are other doctors who are also you know looking for a career in uh, as a healthcare executive, and so it's competitive, and and you want to make sure that you can still do it. I mean, there was nothing wrong with me intellectually; it was just that I couldn't you know couldn't see couldn't see. Yeah. <laughs> now, so you got the degree. Then, then we come to having to find, to having to convince some uh, sight-enabled person that you could do the job you wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that go? Well, that was very interesting. I mean, I, I kind of sat back and I, I really. You know, had never uh, applied for a job. I mean, people have always come to me and say, we yeah. want to hire you. And if I hesitate for a moment, people will say, well, we're going to double your salary, you know, or something like that. So it had been, and, been a cakewalk and, up until then. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of thought, well, I'll go back to school. I'll get my master's in an administrative area, which I have experience in, and I've got a resume in. And that'll be, you know, a, a suitable solution. And people will want to hire me, and it will be an easy, or not necessarily easy, but it will be something <laughs> that uh, is a, a open door, no barrier type situation. It'll be just like it was when I could see. It'll be they'll want well, me. Yeah, they'll want I me mean, to come to work for them. I mean, I didn't think people would say, well, you know, what is your acuity? You know, can you, you know, remove a corneal foreign body that's, you know, you need a very accurate depth perception to be able to do? I mean, I, I wasn't going to do that, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I thought, well, they would automatically assume that I was a, because of my resume and my training and my board certification and as a healthcare executive, that, sure, let's hire this guy. And uh, I didn't find that that was quite the case. I bet you didn't. I'll bet you didn't. Uh, there were, there was, and that that came as a shock to you because you'd never had yes, that before. Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. I'll admit that. Sure, uh, we all, and and you can't, uh, as you grow older, you realize. I'm sure you have. You can't consider it rejection, although it is. But it is, it is really simply them not perceiving. They don't know how the hell they could do the job if they couldn't see, and they don't understand how you could. I certainly agree with that. You know they're they're not facing the same. They don't understand what it's like to be blind, and so they didn't. They knew that they couldn't, uh, and it doesn't matter. I was a disc jockey all my life, and I had the same thing. How could how could this guy run the board and and do commercials if he can't see? I couldn't do it, so I, he couldn't either. But exactly. uh, same thing. But eventually, uh, someone took you on. Someone decided to to take a chance on you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that would be whom? 
Well, um, it's it's a local hospital, Fair Oaks Hospital, and so they thought. That, I mean, they knew of me, and they knew of my wife, and uh, they said, "Boy, this guy is a sharp person. You know, let's go ahead and, and try and see if he can do the job." So I was not necessarily the the situation that you would like to be in, where they say, "You know, whatever you want, you know, we'll." be happy to provide, but they said, you know, we'll give you a, a, a try and, and see if you're able to do the job. Now, what what do you actually do on a day-to-day basis? What, what, are you, what are you responsible for and what do you do now? Well, now I work as a healthcare executive, and I basically administratively run the hospital as far as uh, staffing issues, personnel issues. Um, scheduling of the uh, you know operating room, uh, making all sorts of administrative decisions as to how the hospital is going to be run. So you do some hiring, uh, so oh, yeah. uh, and, and and you say you schedule the operating the the times the operating room is used or the schedule by which it exactly. operates. Mm-hmm. How do you do that with your computer? With your oh yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, 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 a sighted person would do it the same way, correct? Um, Boy, that's that's interesting. I I, I I didn't think of you know how would a sighted person do this? Well, they'd do it with their computer, just like you do, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it's a little. I'm just trying to re- to remember yeah. how they. Well, I'm I'm stumbling yeah. around asking because I'm I'm in such a uh, I'm I'm so kind of overwhelmed by uh, it, it's 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 just strange to talk to a person who knows so much about blindness, maybe not about blindness, but about eyes and eye-related diseases and eye-related things. Uh, I've, I've never known anyone who who you know was a recognized uh physician that that you know it's just it's a it's a so i'm at a loss as to what to ask you but basically there is an operating room and it is up to you to schedule doctors and the times that they can use this operating room exactly all right so you there is there there's a computer program written to do this with yes okay um and but i mean the part that you actually i mean the computer you know, does the things, but yeah. basically, I have to go to the doctors and say, "Well, what time are you available, and what time is the patient available, and what is our availability as far as on the schedule, uh, and to be able to match it up." And doctors have okay. big egos, and so you have well, there, doctors there, yeah. saying, "Well, I want this time because this, you know, is convenient for my golf game, or convenient for, you know, whatever that that person has on their agenda." And then you'll have other people who are competing for the same slot. And, I mean, if you go and you say you always favor one doctor over the rest, then basically the other doctor is going to say, well, I'm not going to do surgery at your hospital anymore. I don't and, like you because you, you schedule Dr. So-and-so. Right. And I wanted that time, and you didn't give it to me. Exactly. So. So I think that would spend more of my time than actual the you know physical entry of the you know data onto the uh, schedule. But. So you were you you admittedly by your own admission are managing egos, oh, and that's absolutely. basically what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a wonderful thing to, to just to admit that to say that. And, and so you say you go to the doctor. Do you make him come to you, or do you you talk to him by phone, or how do you how do you do that? 
I think that I kind of have in my mind how each doctor works and by previous experience, and there will be some that I will say, you know, hey, buddy, you know, you know, can you help me out here? I've got a problem, Dr. So-and-so, once this time, you know, you're such a good guy, you know, yeah. can, can you help me out? And, and some doctors will accept that. You know, other doctors you have to just literally go to and say, this is the, the situation, you know, this is the way that it's going to be, and as, you know, chief of staff, as a hospital administrator, I'm telling you this is what you're going to do. So some doctors, uh, that's the only way that they operate. And some of them will say, to hell with you, buddy, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And yeah. some will say, oh, well, if, since you put it to me that way, well, that's what we're going to do. Uh, now, what, what I'm trying to get around to is you, you keep, you, you've used the word several times, go to. Do you mean physically walk up to, or do you mean on the phone, or do you mean have them come? Uh, what do you, what, what, where are we there? Again, you know, that's part of, of you know, the, the skill involved in it uh-huh. is where are you going to get a hold of these doctors who most of them are very busy people? Uh-huh. And so I have to kind of have in my own memory file, well, on this particular day, this doctor is in this office or this doctor is, you know, making his rounds on this floor of the hospital or he's, you know, talking to the Rotary Club or whatever. Uh-huh. And I will be able to say, okay, you know, I can get a hold of Dr. So-and-so, you know, this way. Okay. A lot of times it's on the phone. You know, that certainly saves me a lot of time. But occasionally I will physically, you know, meet him on the floor of the hospital and say, oh, yeah, Dr. Jones, I just was meaning to talk to you. I just happened to be down here making my rounds. And, uh, you know. Are you actually chasing the guy down? Or not, maybe not physically chasing him down, but you're, you're finding out where he is and, and getting uh, some agreement from him to, uh, to, exactly. uh, to, uh, to do things. And, and are you the only one in your hospital who does this, or are there others you have to coordinate with? Well, I certainly have to coordinate with other people. Yes, we other have a, a a patient advisor, and of course, you know, a patient can sit there and say, "Well, why is it taking so long for Doctor So and So to see me, or whatever?" And so we have to deal with those people. I have a a chief of medical staff. I have a operating nurse that I have to deal with um, as far as as her requirements to be able to get patients in and out efficiently. I have a whole nursing staff who actually does the patient care and and they have to get the orders written and signed by the doctor to be able to, you know, do a pre op patient or to discharge a patient or whatever. Uh, I don't see how you got an hour out to talk to me. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you sound like you. It would be to, to me. It would be a very stressful uh, job. Uh, I guess. Well, I, I'm I'm certain, and probably. I mean, I remember back when I was 26, 27, and doing the, the similar job, that it was quite stressful. But it's it's kind of something that if you do that routinely over a long period of time, it it becomes. You learn new things and you learn new tricks, and I think that's probably one of the advantages of being blind is that you have to sit there and say, no, that that didn't work out. I I need to attack it from a different angle. And so I think that being blind has an advantage from that. There are people who are sighted who say, well, there's only one way to do something. You've got to do it this way. And, uh, you know, that's simply not true. And so I've learned, you know, from being blind that, well, that approach didn't work. Let's try a different angle or a different method to go around what the problem is to be able to come to a workable solution. 
Right, what size hospital is this that you're administering? It's a 160 bed hospital. Which is, uh, I don't, I don't know much about hospitals. Is that that's a medium, small hospital? Medium sized hospital. Yeah. Medium sized hospital. 160 beds. Yes. Uh, so you've got uh, 160 different patients at all times to deal with, mm-hmm. plus many, many doctors. Uh, yes. And how many operating rooms do you have? Well, that's we just finished a, a big expansion of the hospital, and so we added uh, two new operating rooms, and so we now have five ORs going at the same time. Five ORs going at the same time, and you're scheduling all five of those. Well, I, I have you know other people that help. Assistance. Yeah, I'm help responsible you. for the scheduling. Yeah. Yeah. You you are chief of staff at this hospital. Well, I actually have, have a, another physician who is chief of staff. I'm the hospital administrator. Okay, hospital administrator. Okay. Well, uh, sounds like a, a very stressful job. Sounds like a job, but it it, it uh, you seem to be handling it well. Uh, and if I, because I'm not a doctor and I'm not a patient there, so I uh, that would be an assumption on my part, wouldn't it? It would just just seem awfully stressful to me. Uh, well, uh, I, I can imagine that that it does. Um, we are rated as one of the uh, top 100 hospitals in the country, and. Uh, we have full certification from the Joint Commission on uh, Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, and we uh, we have gone through a recent expansion, and uh, we, we see a very positive future. You were rated as one of the top 100, 100 hospitals in the country in in the nation, and, yeah. and and there would there are thousands of hospitals in this nation. I think there's about six thousand, and you're one of the top 100. Yes. Well, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. You just excel at everything, don't you? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I mean, that's nice flattery, but, uh, I mean, it's something where you really have to kind of sit down and say, you know, step by step, you know, uh, this is where we want to be. This is how we're going to approach it. Um, if there's any roadblocks in the air, in the way, then this is how we're going to uh, get over those. So, I, you know, I, I don't mean to to puff it up because uh, I certainly know there are deficiencies in our hospital. Sure, working every day on that medication safety is a big issue in healthcare today. You probably heard, you know, the Institute of Medicine report that 98,000 people die needlessly, you know, each year because of medication errors and. So we're certainly trying to emphasize hospital safety and patient satisfaction at this point in time, and we've been somewhat successful in accomplishing our goals there. I I have read that figure, and that amazed me. Uh, It just amazed me, but I wonder what percentage of people, uh, what percentage would that be of people who, who find themselves in a hospital situation in a year? A very small percentage, I would think. Well, it certainly is a small percentage, but, uh, but we, still we have a, a real problem, you know, in our healthcare system. I don't think there are a bunch of people going out and deliberately making mistakes. But, uh, again, it's a, a stressful environment working in the hospital, and people are licensed, and so that means there's a, a state board of medicine or state board of nursing that holds you accountable. And it may be a simple situation where a doctor orders a prescription, and the way that the pills are allocated by alphabetical number, you reach up and you're in a hurry and you grab the wrong bottle. You know, And so... Those type of, of mistakes can happen, and so we're trying to look at ways not to blame people. Uh, you made this mistake. It's your fault. 
going back and saying, what were the underlying circumstances in the system that caused this error to take place? And so we're, we're really into that, and I think that that's going to be a trend in healthcare where they're going to start saying, you know, instead of blaming people for errors, let's find the underlying causes and correct the causes so the errors don't occur in the future rather mm-hmm. than burying it so that people don't get sued for malpractice or lose their license or those sort of things that happen under the current blame system that we have. Well, and, and, and basically so that we don't, we don't lose lives. I mean, exactly. Uh, you know, I've been in, in a uh, hospital situation three or four times in the last five or six years. I, I won't, we won't, what old people like to do is talk about their medical problems, and that's not where I'm trying to go. It, it seemed to me that the nurses were very stressed, that they were very harried or, or overworked, as it were. Uh, is that the situation everywhere, pretty much, or, or what? Absolutely. Well, first of all, we have a major nursing manpower shortage at this point in time, and that is because of a lot of, of social changes that have taken place. I mean, it used to be that women, you know, who wanted to become educated would be a teacher or a nurse. You know, there weren't a whole lot of alternatives. And uh, that certainly has changed within the last 20 or 30 years. And so women have much wider opportunities uh, professionally. And so that's a great thing. But uh, there just really has not been a lot of people who want to do the demanding type of work that nurses do. So so that's definitely a, a problem that comes from just a lack of manpower of, of women or of people who want to be nurses. The second thing comes from really my end of it as far as administration. You know, we come like anyone else. We have a budget. We have expenses. We have fixed expenses. We have variable expenses. And we really can't control our our fixed expenses very well. I mean, you've got to pay rent on your hospital. You've got to pay the electric bill, that sort of thing. The only thing that we can control, really, are how many nurses are on duty. And so... In 1978, they came up with what they called TEFRA, but this was basically a federal program to try to control health care costs. And so they set what they call DRGs, which is diagnosis-related groups, and when you're admitted to the hospital with an appendicitis, the government has a concept, well, this is going to take, you know, two days, yep. you know, in the hospital. Once you hit those two days, then instead of the hospital receiving payment for that, the payment stops. And so you have this situation where patients in the hospital are sicker when they go in and they're discharged quicker. And so this is putting a lot of pressure, you know, on the nursing staff to be able to get the patients in and out as rapidly as possible. And so we, the only way that administrators can really control costs is to by making sure there's no excessive uh, number of nurses that are present on duty at any one time. And unfortunately, when you make it that way, what you do is you're chronically understaffed. And I think from a patient care standpoint that that's absolutely atrocious. But uh, there are some some, uh, legislation that is pending. I know California recently passed legislation mandating, you know, you have to have for so many patients, you have to have so many nurses. And so it's it's going to be going back the other way, you know, where they're going to be hiring more nurses and providing a much... uh, closer level of nursing care or nursing staffing uh, than just arbitrarily setting, well, we've got 
six patients here, that's one, one nurse. You know, they're going to say, how sick are these patients? How much care do they need? You know, let's staff at an appropriate level so that we have at least a minimum, you know, of nursing staff available at all times. But then where are they going to get nurses? Well, uh, you know, that's an excellent question, and that's really where healthcare executives are trying to uh, make the nursing profession more enticing uh, for people to join. And so uh, they're doing that by offering all sorts of benefits, and uh, certainly the pay has increased. Uh, I know that my wife, uh, when she started in nursing, she made less than, than $9 an hour, and you know, now she makes $40 an hour. So, so I think there's going to be a big change in that as far as increased benefits for nurses, increased uh, recruiting. Uh, they're actually going to the nursing schools and saying, if you decide to come and work for our hospital, we'll help pay for your education. Sure. So there's a lot of, of uh, innovative methods that people are using trying to increase the level of nursing staffing in hospitals. Roger, unfortunately, we're, we, have, we have stumbled into a subject that I can tell you are very passionate about and that I would like to do maybe another show on uh, in, the, in the future, but we are out of time. Okay. Maybe in a month, six weeks, two months, I want to call you, and, and because obviously you spend a lot of time thinking about this, making decisions about it, uh, maybe writing papers on this subject of... Uh, of um, Maybe not, uh, well, of hospital administration about how we can correct this nurses being so overworked and get more people. You know, obviously, you've, have you done some writing about this? And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. Everyone who goes through this program has to write, you know, white papers and PowerPoint presentations. And you go to Congress. I mean, that's one of the advantages. I went to George Washington University. You can physically go in to congressional hearings. I've been in several congressional hearings and actually present data and present viewpoints and prevent, you know, pie graphs and all these sort of things as to try to communicate, you know, what the problems are and what the potential solutions are. Let me uh, keep your name on my guest list and call you back, and let's do 15 to 20 minutes on this subject alone. Good? Okay. Absolutely. Very good. Guest, Dr. Roger Zolman from Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Dr. Roger Zolman. He's on the on the Blind Like Me list. If you're not, you should be. Blind Like Me at Yahoo Groups. Blind Like Me dash subscribe at yahoogroups.com. That'll put you on the Blind Like Me list. We'd love to have you. Just kind of a silly list. We talk about all kinds of things. You come and join us. Blind Like Me dash subscribe at yahoogroups.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, be sure and email me. You can just do that. You can just do that at Phil. Uh, uh, Phil at philpar.net. Phil, P-H-I-L, at P-H-I-L-P-A-R-R dot net. Phil at philpar.net, and we'll put you on as a guest on this little show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.